0: This is not the media. This
1: is hell.
2: So Patreon took their ads off of Facebook, too. I've been having my issues with having, face, or having Patreon being our only uh, venue for any kind of revenue on the show. But hats off to Patreon for taking their ads off of Facebook. And Alex, get this. You want to hear how sleazy the Chicago Cubs are? They're, Shoot. Get this. So you know, Major League Baseball says they're going to play sixty games. They're not going to play sixty games, but the Cubs said, you know, obviously we can't have fans in the stands, right? But all of the rooftop seating around the stadium that they own, they're going to pack people in like sardines. <laughs> god the cubs are so sleazy they are so it's so obvious that they're like a trump donating team they just oh my god they're so gross we're gonna keep the fans safe by not allowing anybody in the stadium but our own private businesses that we own across the street that that have a view of the inside of the stadium we're gonna pack people in like sardines and we don't care if they get covid or whatever oh my god today on this is hell the police need to be defunded They've been given far too many responsibilities and far too much is being asked of them. From being school guards to animal control officers to policing the homeless who do not need police to deal with those. And, and, and we do not need police to deal with those suffering from mental health episodes. Cops are filling all sorts of roles within society that do not need a response from a bulletproof, vest-wearing, open-carry, gun-brandishing cop. Maybe it's just me, but if I was having some sort of emotional episode, the last thing I would need is an armed guard coming into my home telling me to calm down. So yes, the police need to be defunded and less a part of our daily lives. But that won't be enough. As long as we have prosecutorial abuse within the U.S. criminal justice system, all these police reforms and defunding may be for naught. We'll learn all about the other problem with justice in the U.S. we speak in a few to law scholars, Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz, who are co-authors of the Boston Review article Hold Prosecutors Accountable Too, which was also reposted at Black Agenda Report. Kate is associate professor of law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law and is a former appellate public defender. You can follow Kate on Twitter at K. Levine, levine 2 Joanna is professor at UCLA School of Law, where she studies police misconduct and civil rights litigation. Her recent focus has been on qualified immunity, and she has authored several studies that undermine the Supreme Court's various policy justifications for the doctrine. You can follow Joanna on Twitter at J.C. Schwartz Prof. Prof. J.C. Schwartz prof. Oh, and uh, one other thing we'll learn when we talk to Kate and Joanna is that Harry Connick Jr.'s dad is a complete prick and part of the entire problem within the U.S. criminal justice system. And I don't like Harry Connick Jr., so that works out for me. I'm your bitter, blind, broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. His acting in Independence Day is nauseous. This week's question from hell is, who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? By the way, Alex, I did not see the image you posted with the question from hell until after the show yesterday. Over the weekend, when I first saw that image of the man and woman in the St. Louis area waving guns at protesters as they marched by their very, very, very tacky McMansion that looks like it's owned and designed by a cocaine warlord. I thought I recognized the woman, and it was driving me nuts. Then I remembered another video from last week of another Karen at a convenience store in Phoenix telling the cashier not to serve a woman of color because the woman should go back to her own country. The suspected foreigner replied that her family had been here in the Americas for centuries, but the altercation got more heated. The white woman becomes engaged Increasingly agitated, there's some sort of physical contact And the much smaller Woman of color smacks the white lady Who then abruptly leaves Saying, oh my god, oh my god Oh my god, her husband later uh, Posts an apology, saying that his wife Has had some mental issues of late And this is a complete surprise that she would Never have done that kind of thing in the past The Karen in that video looks like this, the armed Karen in St. Louis So the one in Phoenix looks just like the one uh, In St. Louis, they're, they're both wearing loud print striped tops, which I'm starting to think is the uniform of the Karen. So if a large framed blonde white lady with a, and I think the blonde is dyed with a striped printed top starts into a racist rant, please take cover. Immediately go to the southeast corner of your basement and stay away from all windows in case of shattering glass. This has been a public service announcement. From your friends at This Is Hell. Also, Alex, the picture you shared, get this, was one of the images shared by the Facebook group Ohio Open Carry, with the caption, Here are a few more pictures of the home and property of the couple demonized by the media for trying to defend their private property from violent thugs. Imagine working so hard to build such a beautiful home and not take a stand for it when it's threatened by a mob. I love the assumption that they worked hard for their home. They didn't get it through inheritance or making money off the financial crisis, housing bubble bursting, or off environmental devastation or overpricing drugs so people can't afford them and then died. No, they must have worked hard because in capitalism, the rich only get rich through working hard. In Ohio Open Carry says the street was clearly marked as private, so the protesters had no right to be there. Their evidence? A very (laughs) unofficial-looking Private street sign that looks like they Ordered it from Levenger and then put it Up outside for a photo op And in fact you can find that street sign At Levenger And I should have asked Jennifer Holland yesterday If the anti-abortion movement's concept of white Civil rights created Karen's as the anti-abortion movement Was dominated by white Suburban Christian women Despite the fact that a lot of people believe This myth that it was dominated by men It was not so, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail Wins a This Is Hell medical face mask You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Where you, s- we'll see all the ways you can help out Completely listener-supported This Is Hell Without you, we got nothing So thanks for all of your support You can leave your answer to this week's question mail At our Facebook page, you can email it to us You can tweet it to us But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show When we will be announcing this week's winner Alex,
0: how have listeners been answering the question from hell Since yesterday's show? This is question from hell is who or what if you don't want to get in trouble are you pointing a gun at who or what are you pointing a gun at lisa b says pointing my glue gun as i bedazzle the crap out of everything (laughs) that's an awesome answer john c says cut me some slack my bladder was full i was writhing and the bushes seemed to be secluded enough (laughs) caroline m says if they were afraid for their lives why did they leave the house they weren't afraid they were spoiling for a fight because they have such a hate for these people yep nikki says my reflection who or what are you pointing a, a gun at? A lot of people at? are saying that. Yeah, I'm, I'm all, for any, all for these ones. I think
2: we, our whole uh, listening audience uh, is having an existential crisis.
0: <laughs> Fabio L. says, bronze and marble statues come alive to wreck Havage on the world of flesh. <laughs> M says, my uv- my uvula. Uvula? Oof.
2: Uvula. Ugh.
0: Uh, Tamarin F. says, the groundhog who terrorizes the garden living under the berry plants. But still, I wouldn't pull the trigger. I will only point. I give the gun back to the trapper. He drives off to fish somewhere. (laughs) Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Nick A says, at American soldiers so I can get that sweet Russian bounty. That was Nick A. That was not Chuck M or Alex J.
2: Wow, Uh, Nick A, you're a front runner right uh, now.
0: Andrea J says, the slow-growing rosemary in my yard. I'm on to you. (coughs) Joshua L says, our
2: our rosemary died this year, too.
0: Joshua L says, white Jesus, picture on the wall. Uh, Ladio says, My caulk gun pointed at yet another fissure. Caulk is a load bearing liquid around here. Tough times all around, I guess, Ladio. Patricia O says, Daddy. (laughs) Maybe the best one. (laughs) Oh, wait, actually, maybe not, because Kelly H. just said, my children. (laughs) Oh, wow. Get the F on the lawn and stay there. (laughs) And finally, who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Sebastian W. says, it's summer, so obviously my gun is pointed at that no-good, all-bad, glowing hot orb in the sky that makes life miserable for all of us. What good has it ever done any of us, and why do we abide its constant presence? I don't know, but I've had it. It's on, son.
2: (laughs) I'm also... Somebody who has a long-standing rivalry with the sun, as the sun ruins my vision. And it, it, as far as I'm concerned, it's a little bit too close to the earth. But that's just you know, that's just me. I have no idea. And by the way, Alex, I just want to say, the question from how I was really concerned about this week, but these answers have been outstanding. So maybe you should be. Uh... More, you know, walking along that line of maybe we should ask this question, maybe we shouldn't, because this has been spectacular. Alex will have more of your incredible answers to this week's question, mail. following our guest. Again, email us your answer at chuckatthyshell.com or com or via our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio, or DM us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. We will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday following jeff dorchin in the moment of truth so get your answers in now during tomorrow's moment of truth jeff finds out who put the pump in pompeo live from hangover country this is hell. You can email us, direct message us via Twitter, or use Facebook Messenger to send us your thoughts, your comments, your criticism, both constructive and destructive, your guest and topic suggestions. And if you do, we'll likely read your communications on the air. Greg emailed us, for instance, asking, I hope you are keeping safe and well. That's very thoughtful of you, Greg, and I appreciate it. I just wanted to ask if you are currently open to collaborate with brands for paid posts. We are partnered with a brand who would be interested in working with you if you are interested on This Is Hell. No, Greg, but thanks. We are completely listener-supported, and despite getting offers from advertisers to be at our site, and despite us being broke... We will continue to not take any advertiser's money in order to avoid any kind of conflict of interest and to remain completely listener-supported. Which leads us to another email, this one from Stephen. Stephen says, I heard about your show probably 20 years ago, but only recently I saw a former correspondent of This Is Hell, Young Sung. Share it on Facebook. Now I'm addicted to the show and have about a thousand to get through, but I cannot find the ethical conflict of interest rap about the reasons you don't take advertising, aren't friends with your guests, and a bunch of other principles about how you run the show in one of your segments from the last year or two. If you have it written down and could share it with me, I'd be so grateful so I can pass it along to some others who I am discussing what's wrong with the media universe with. Steven, I remember I did a monologue on the topic and I think it was 2017, maybe 2018, but I don't know when. Look, just listen to my monologue from last week on June 24th. My guess is it's pretty much the same thing. Everyone's biased, taking any money from advertisers or foundation adds to that bias. So to avoid bias, we are completely listener-supported. So our only bias is you and whatever unresolved personal issues are tumbling around in my noggin. Stephen adds, I've been making short videos lately, shooting ephemeral footage of our collapsing empire and putting a layer of half disassociative but reflective audio over it. And I would like to borrow some bits from your show on indigenous rights and imperialism. The only... They only get posted on Instagram and Facebook and get seen by about a few hundred people at most. Basically, I write about architecture and urbanism for magazines, mostly professional magazines, so bound up in all kinds of contradictions about capital uh, relates to the world we make for profit instead of for habitation. Uh, Go ahead, Stephen. You want to do anything with our audio? Go nuts. And anyone who wants to use our audio and some of your sound art, feel free. Stephen ends with, lastly, I heard on one of the shows that you refused an offer from Air America, but have you considered otherwise doing cable news? If there was an ethical, independent channel, there should be at least one non-BS 24 news, 24-hour news, 24 news option somewhere. Best? Stephen. You are correct, Stephen. There should be a non-BS 24-hour cable news station. But first, I did not turn down a job with Air America. I was told I was one of the first people considered for a position back around the year 2000, but was not offered a job. When I asked the person who was intimately aware of programming discussions at the time as to why they decided not to have me on, I got this cryptic, you know why. I I still have my guesses, but I don't really know why, and after having heard that wretched radio network, which was named after a CIA drug smuggling ring in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War, now that Air America is thankfully gone, I don't care. And Stephen, yeah, TV doesn't work for me being live on stage either, because my disability leads me to have intense solar sensitivity, so any bright lights give me horrible headaches and make me completely sightless. We got a suggestion, and Alex, I forwarded this to you because this is a good one. Seb writes, I would like to share this blog post from a colleague in Vietnam, Zion Johnson. He could be an interesting guest to have interviewed about the lockdown that passed in Vietnam and about his perspective as a trans African-American expat. His most recent blog post at blacklivingabroad.wordpress.com from June 26th on Just One Man's Experience of Race in Vietnam gives a nice slice of life, and following prior Thursday interviews that you had had about living under quarantine around the world, his perspective on life in a country with zero deaths contributed to COVID-19, I think, would be of interest to listeners. I have already requested his permission to refer him to you as a guest, and I have told him that the time difference would be to have the interview in local time. I sincerely hope you'll contact him. Cheers, Seb. Alex has been – I really appreciate this, Seb, because Alex has been diligently trying to find someone who will speak to us live from Vietnam. But the time difference, again, has been a challenge, so thanks, Seb, for the suggestion, and Alex will be following up and listeners. Again, if you want to check out Zion Johnson's work, that's blacklivingabroad.wordpress.com and his June 26th post that Seb suggests, which is entitled Just One Man's Experience of Race in Vietnam – Adam also sent us an email to Chuck at hell.com and Alex at com, and he writes, Good morning, Chuck. I've returned to Chicago just this weekend after a brief exactly two-year stay in the Bay Area. I'm assuming that's the San Francisco Bay Area, not the area around Saginaw, Michigan. One of the first things I looked forward to was taking a jog through the new neighborhood in search of parks. Forest preserves are just pretty places to be outdoors passing by a Dunkin' Donuts, I see a portly white guy wearing a blue Lives Matter t-shirt, getting out of his black luxury car. Cop plates and fashion plates, too. They say B-A-D space L-T Bad space L-T Adam writes Welcome back to Chicago, I thought. A friend warned me I was moving to a cop neighborhood. The northwest corner of Chicago is particularly a, or, sorry was <clears throat> practically a suburb. And I've seen a ton of parked cop cars and cop plates and cop union stickers in just a few days I've been here. And so I guess I'm going to guess that Adam is in Portage Park because we looked for a home there a few years ago and the police presence was so frightening we decided not to move there. It's not the only cop land we have in Chicago. There's another straight north of here at the border of the city and both areas are the only places on the north side that voted for Trump. And I'm betting on the far southwest side you'll find a few cop lands, too, and that they all voted for Trump. Adam continues, part of me wanted to remark that at first glance, Mr. Blue Lives Matter's license plate looked like it said BLT. Was he going for a double entendre here? No, cops don't do that stuff They are good at bashing heads and murdering black people Jokes, not so much Like choosing Bad Lieutenant as your license plate If that's an attempt at humor, Adam says It's pretty damn troubling A film about a crooked cop Shouldn't be something referenced on a real cop's car And Adam, I would add Especially when that movie's crooked cop Also, also sexually abuses and assaults women Adam concludes, but that's Chicago for you. The city's so corrupt, we've got jokes, and even the cops are in on them. Hope to see you soon. Not too soon. But when it's reasonably safe, I'll be happy to buy you a beer at an upcoming Drink and Think. Cheers, Adam. Adam, we're looking forward to drinking and thinking with you as well, and all of our listeners, on an upcoming This Is Hell office hours that will be happening on a Friday night, Sometime in the future Yeah, cop culture is really weird And it definitely has to go And it can go away By demilitarizing the police By defunding the police By ending immunity and impunity Within the police force And in, within prosecutors who abuse the law And probably it'll take even more than that Maybe even a sup- Supreme Court decision But I, I'm hoping at least it can be done I hope Because cops as we have them today They, they really, really suck that's listener feedback. You can email us at Chuck at com. Alex at com. DM us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, message us via Facebook at Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. This is hell coming up. Sure, we need police reform, but without prosecutorial Reform, the real problems of criminal justice will not have been addressed. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, and is that being proven more and more over and over again with these intense searches by the city of Chicago to round up any and all looting suspects? They can't solve a murder, but they sure as hell will get anybody, bust anyone who stole anything. So yeah, live in the United States where property has more rights than people, this is hell yes to fund the police. Yes, they are too involved in all aspects of our lives in the United States, especially for people of color and the poor. But if we don't do something about prosecutorial abuse as well as police abuse, then the problems with the U.S. criminal justice system Will not be fixed. Here to explain, law scholars Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz are co authors of the Boston Review article, Hold Prosecutors Accountable Too, which was reposted at Black Agenda. First, welcome to This Is How, Kate.
1: Hi, thanks a
2: lot. Kate is associate professor of law at the Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law. She writes about the police and reducing the carceral state. She's also a former appellate public defender, and you can find Kate on Twitter at that's Levine 2 That's L E V I N E. And welcome to This Is Hell, Joanna.
3: Hi, nice to be here.
2: Joanna is professor at UCLA's School of Law, where she studies police misconduct and civil rights litigation. Her recent focus has been on qualified immunity, and she has authored several studies that undermine the Supreme Court's various Policy Justifications for the doctrine. Find Joanna on Twitter at J.C. Schwartz Prof. Joanna, let's start with you first. You write, you and uh, Kate write together. Among those who focus on individual blame for bad Apple police officers, renewed criticism has been made of the legal doctrine of qualified immunity, which shields police officers from civil liability unless there is a prior court decision holding virtually identical conduct to be unconstitutional. Qualified immunity is a deeply problematic doctrine and the Supreme Court or Congress should do away with it. Again, qualified immunity shields police officers from civil civil liability unless there is a prior court decision holding virtually identical conduct to be unconstitutional. Joanna, how identical does that previous abuse have to be to hold a police officer civilly liable for abuse? Well, the
3: Supreme Court... Uh, hasn't been completely clear about that. They they repeatedly say in their opinions that there doesn't have to be a prior case precisely on point. But on the other hand, it has to be clear enough that every police official would know that what they were doing was wrong. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly reversed lower courts um, that have denied qualified immunity. And in those decisions, really chastised those courts for looking too broadly or thinking too generally about what the standard is. And lower courts have gotten that message. And although there's some variation, you can see a lot of circuit court decisions where even the smallest factual distinction um, is a basis for granting qualified immunity. So there's a case called Baxter versus Bracey that um, the Supreme Court decided not to hear a couple weeks ago. Um, This was a case where there was a burglary suspect. Um, He uh, had been trying to evade arrest, but then ultimately sat down and put his hands in the air, uh, was not resisting, was not trying to flee, and the police released their police dog on him and injured him. And in that same circuit, the courts had previously made clear that you cannot use force against a non-resisting uh, suspect. Um, and there had been even a prior decision where there was someone who had been lying on the ground and officers had released their police dog on him. And in that case, the circuit said that was unconstitutional behavior. But the circuit also said, when looking at this case, Baxter versus Bracy, that a prior case Um, holding unconstitutional, releasing a dog on someone uh, as they were lying down, was not close enough factually to the case where a person was sitting down with their hands in the air to clearly establish that releasing the dog on the person who was sitting uh, was unconstitutional.
2: So Kate, uh, Joanna was just saying that it would take an either uh, Supreme Court decision or it would take Congress to overturn this kind of immunity that shields police officers from civil liability. Where do you think it's more likely for this kind of immunity to be overturned? The Supreme Court uh, would take an entire Supreme Court decision, which it looks like the Supreme Court keeps uh, ruling for over and over again for shielding police officers. So where is it more likely that this can be overturned in the Supreme Court or in Congress?
1: Uh, My short answer is actually neither. But um, if if I had to choose one, I would say Congress. Uh, The Supreme Court actually just recently um, denied cert, so won't hear uh, two cases challenging qualified immunity. Um, those decisions were made, you know, over the last couple of weeks, um, showing that, you know the court certainly isn't going to respond to um, the increased criticism um, of the doctrine. Now, uh, there's been some movement or some suggestion in Congress um, that there would be consideration of uh, reforming or getting rid of qualified immunity. Um, on the other hand, Republican senators, have made fairly clear that they would not uh, pass such a bill. I think the most energy, and <clears throat> Joanna may know more about this than I do, but the most energy to um, get rid of um, qualified immunity is actually in the states, and you can you could sue under state law. Um, so I guess I'm not, I'm not optimistic that either branch uh, of the federal government is going to do much uh, to reverse qualified immunity. But if either is going to do something, I would have to guess that it's Congress.
2: And would you agree with that, Joanna?
3: Well, I'm more of an optimist, not because mm-hmm. I necessarily think that there will be a, 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 something different than what Kate says, but because I feel like I have to believe that something <laughs> will happen in order to continue doing the work. <laughs> um, I think that um, the Supreme Court is, uh, it, you know, they, is is not. They haven't moved. They still. They could um, agree to grant. CERT next year, and there's all sorts of um, reading the tea leaves about why the Supreme Court didn't take action now. I mean, they they had at one point up to 13 CERT petitions on qualified immunity that they were holding on to and repeatedly delayed um, deciding whether they were going to hear them, suggesting that there there is some sort of deliberation happening in the Supreme Court. Um, I wonder whether Uh, The fact that there have been bills proposed in Congress to eliminate qualified immunity uh, might be the reason that the Supreme Court decided to wait and and see um, what would happen. And I agree with Kate that uh, Senate Republicans, as of now, have described qualified immunity reform as a poison pill, uh, a line in the sand that they're not going to cross But I'm I'm also hopeful that that could change. Um, There's there's been massive changes uh, and conversations. You know I've been studying qualified immunity for 10 years, and the fact that people protesters are are around waving signs that say end qualified immunity, uh, you know, suggests to me that anything is possible. Um, But I I I recognize that it's all a long shot, and I agree that um, there is a lot of exciting action happening in the states, including a bill that was recently passed in Colorado that I think um, eliminates qualified immunity and and does some other interesting things related to civil accountability um, that could prove a model for, for other states.
2: But Joanna, that immunity for police relates to civil liability. How would you describe any kind of immunity police officers have from criminal liability, whether they are practices of the law or more about culture and society and how the media represents and the public views, the police, to what extent do police have any immunity from criminal liability for abuse?
3: I'm going to pass that question uh, off to Kate, who is absolutely uh, the expert, not just on this call, but more generally um, in the, the question of uh, prosecution of um, of police.
2: Yeah. And Kate, you're a former appellate uh, public defender. So please uh, tell me what you think about that.
1: Right. Thanks. Um, so there's no official immunity in the same way that there is from civil liability. But um, I think as we've seen over the past several years, when there's been increased interest in criminal prosecution of the police, um, that it can be very difficult, even in situations where to the public, it seems as though clearly a crime, a violent crime has been committed Um to uh, get criminal charges and or a conviction um, of uh, individual police officers. Um, So some of the reasons for that are uh, the substantive law, which gives police a very strong um, uh, an individual self-defense claim, um, and prosecutors' relationships with police and their fear of charging them or running afoul of police organizations um, and even if prosecutors do decide to charge uh, police officers criminally, uh, there tends to be a lot of uh, bias in favor of the police um, in in court, so from judges, from uh, juries, um and and obviously from from prosecutors. Um I think we actually see more of this when uh, police officers are testifying against uh, poor, often uh, defendants of color in when when it, it's a civilian defendant. But we also see this when police officers um, become defendants. That said, um, you know, in recent years, we've definitely seen a small uptick in charges uh, being brought against police officers and uh, very quick charges brought against the police officers in uh, the killing of Mr. Floyd. So I wouldn't say it's the same kind of immunity. Um, I do have to say that I don't think the criminal legal system is the best place to be working any of this out, because I don't think anything that further adds legitimacy to our criminal legal system is... going to be a a net positive for um, for, for anyone in the long run.
2: Joanna, you and Kate also write that the well-deserved focus on any qualified immunity should not lead us to miss the forest for the trees. In order to achieve lasting change, we must focus on systemic changes to our criminal justice system. Joanna, what do we miss when the focus is only only, and solely on the police, when the debate is limited to defunding and re, uh, reforming the police without considering any shortcoming of the criminal justice system writ large? What do we miss when we only focus on the police? Because I've been noticing that a lot on the mainstream media, that this is just a question of if we can police better.
3: Sure. Well, so I think that, that uh, there are sort of... Um, there are increasing uh, ways to pull back the lens and see the problems in in broader and broader terms. Obviously, the the narrowest view is just thinking about individual police officers and framing them as bad apples. And if you pull the frame out um, slightly uh, more broadly, you can think about the the, the way in which police culture and police departments foster misconduct. You pull back further, um, and this is you know capturing some of the conversation about defunding the police. You can think about other services, other aspects of um, our social system that is under that are underfunded um, to the benefit of police. So mental health, housing, um, drug treatment, um, and part of the defund the police um, effort is thinking about the other ways to reinvest in communities, education um that uh, That can provide um, uh, greater support for our communities. Um, but in this uh, Boston review piece, we also think when you when you pull out, you have to pull back the lens to think about other actors in the criminal justice system. And um, as we talk about in the article, prosecutors are a critically important part as well, um, who uh, work with police, who, um, who uh, fail um, and can fail in their work to um, pressure police to um, behave properly and who themselves can um, engage in significant misconduct that can have devastating consequences uh, for people.
2: Well, Joanna, I don't want to boil this down to just one individual act when it's a more systemic problem. But what impact can other agents in criminal law enforcement have on the way whether a police officer treats a citizen appropriately or violently?
3: Well, it, prosecutors, um, you know, prosecutors make decisions about um, uh, about arrest. And um, uh, excuse me about about who to prosecute and how to bring those claims. Um, there are certainly uh, examples, and Kate could speak to them uh, in more detail of um, prosecutors that have um, uh, you know n- done nothing to to stop police from um, mistreating uh, people in custody. Um, have failed to disclose misconduct by officers that they are aware of, and, and they themselves have engaged in misconduct that can result in um, prosecutions and convictions that can cause people to lose decades of their lives, if not their lives
2: and kate i think that we have this image that it's just the cops who are causing the problems not the prosecutors as if the cops are, or police are working as like rogue officers outside of the criminal justice system so what is missed when we don't uh, when we don't even represent that within the media with any kind of represent, cultural representations of prosecutors where prosecutors are and, and if I'm, if this is unfair to characterize them this way Prosecutors are the ones who are pulling the strings of the police. Um, I
1: wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say prosecutors are necessarily pulling the strings, but I would certainly say prosecutors are as responsible for the tremendous failings of our criminal legal system um, as police. Uh, prosecutors, as Joanna was just saying, have complete discretion about whether, in every case, to bring charges, how, how, you know, how harsh the charges should be. How to make a plea negotiation um, and, and are basically never questioned for um bringing those charges um so if a prosecutor sees that police have um conducted themselves poorly they have complete discretion to not uh bring charges in that case we don't see that you know that's not happening very often uh we also uh know that that you know police are famous for uh, being dishonest on the stand. There's a term called test lying that basically means police officers lying. Um, And yet, you know, prosecutors put police officer after police officer uh, on the stand in suppression hearings uh, and trials and act as if their word uh, is is gospel. Um, When we just know that that's not true and when prosecutors in certain places have lists of officers they know have been dishonest um, in the past, and furthermore, if we, if the current concern, as in my opinion it should be, uh, is about the uh, race and 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 you know monetary uh, level of folks who are being prosecuted, um, prosecutors are are just as, if not more, responsible for the fact that poor people of color uh, go to prison at a far higher rate than than white people and 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 than wealthy people. So I, I think just looking at the, you you really can't take one. Uh, agent in the criminal legal system and say it is their fault. Police are just the most visible arm of a violent system.
2: Well, so Kate, you were just saying that the uh, there's this thing, test a line, where police go on the stand and lie. Do they have immunity from perjury as well?
1: No, they don't have immunity from perjury. It's just that the way that the system works, right, The just in the way that prosecutors have discretion about whether or not to charge a civilian with a drug crime, they have discretion about whether to uh, charge or even, you know, highlight uh, whether a police officer has 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 perjured themselves. I mean, they obviously have uh, an ethical duty to do something about it, but uh, we know that they just aren't, and they can always say, "Well, I didn't know." Right? There's just this plausible deniability, um, and they're just not encouraged to do this kind of work because it gets in the way of racking up convictions, which. Pro, which not all prosecutors' offices, but most prosecutors' offices, see as the sign uh, of success. So if you want to be successful, you, you get convictions. Um, you don't question the police because the police are the ones, in most cases, helping you get those convictions.
2: Joanna, you and Kate also write that one avenue for such change in the police is a reduction of our reliance on the police. Some activists are already have already, uh, having measured success here in the form of the defund the police movement, this is heartening. So, uh, Joanna, police say they're overworked. Protesters are saying we rely too much on police. Police don't apparently want this much work and the citizenry apparently doesn't want to depend on them as much as we do rely on them. So why were those who were performing public services replaced by police, you know, whether it's Uh, You know, there's an article in The New York Times the other day, does NYPD get too too much? Perhaps it's asked to do too much, where they talk about them being animal control officers and policing the uh, homeless and being school guards and mental health health care workers. So, Joanna, why did the public decide to burden the police so much? Why do we get to this point where we are far too over-policed than we were in the past?
3: Well, I, I don't think I have a, a, a simple answer to that question. It's a really good question, but I mean, I certainly think that part of the uh, part of the explanation that has been given is the sort of decrease of um, mental uh, health care and sort of shutting down of um, of, of services um, for um, people who need them. Uh, and you know that you could think beyond um, mental health services i mean there's been decrease in um, housing aid uh, defunding of education Um, and uh, i think that those who have studied this more carefully have looked to um, union agreements and other promises made to police to increase their budgets Um, and, and so I think there's there's two things happening at, at the same time. One is um, cities not investing in other services um, and supports for cities. And the other is um, police uh, negotiating and, and getting larger and larger budgets. Um, in large cities, police department budgets can be a quarter or a third of the entire city's Budget and there's not a whole lot of room for for anything else. Um, there have been calls um, for uh, for creating, you know, other lines, other numbers to call, um, and other services to to provide. Um, and and law enforcement officials, um, at least in some places, um, as you said, recognize and believe that they have too many responsibilities. Um but bureaucracies are hard to change, and um simply installing another number and telling people to call it, um, you know sounds sounds simple, but there are there are a lot of steps that that go into making that kind of change, and you know i'm I'm heartened that this is now very much part of the conversation. Um, it's a conversation that's been have had for for decades, but but now there is sort of public attention to it. And, you know, time will tell whether um, whether this change that it seems like people, um, you know, the communities want and that law enforcement in theory um, should support. We'll, we'll we'll see whether it ends up um, taking root.
2: And, Joanna, you and Kate write that more often criminal convictions are overturned when the prosecutor is shown to have withheld evidence that would have exculpated. The defendant, for example, in numerous cases, it has been discovered after the fact that prosecutors did not disclose evidence showing that a prosecution witness was made promises or threatened by police before giving a statement helpful to the prosecution's case. To the extent one might imagine these events are very rare, an internal review by the Brooklyn District Attorney revealed over 20 cases of prosecutorial misconduct in their office alone. Is that Illegal, Joanne. Is that a crime? Can prosecutors be held accountable for withholding evidence that leads to a false conviction? Because that would seem like the opposite of the justice they're trying to serve.
3: Yeah, I, I can speak to the the civil side. I defer questions about criminal prosecution, though, uh, of prosecutors to uh, to Kate.
2: So, Kate, what do you think? Uh, is that illegal? Is that a crime? Can prosecutors be held accountable for withholding evidence that leads to a false uh, conviction?
1: Right. I mean, so something can be sort of illegal but not criminal. Um, and I think most instance, in most instances, um, unless uh, there can, it can be proven that the misconduct is sort of flagrant and intentional, uh, it would never be a, a criminal case. I mean, prosecutors can be very creative when they want to and charge— um, people with, with things you might not think are crimes. So I think in some instances, prosecutors, it, it's possible that they could be criminally charged. But I do think the issue is more um, is less, is this a crime and more, uh, is there any uh, way to expose this kind of misconduct and to get um, some sort of system-wide or or individual accountability in the form of civil lawsuit or disciplinary proceedings against prosecutors who, who do these kinds of of things rather than looking at it as a problem for the criminal legal system, which I think is our problem to begin with, that we always look to the criminal legal system to solve uh, problems. So, uh, so again, I think it's possible in some instances that a crime could be proven. It's just not that that's not going to happen. Um, it, I think that the, the energy should be on the question of civil liability.
2: And do defense attorneys have the same capability as prosecutors to mislead the jury by not offering up all the evidence that they have?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Well, so it's the prosecutor's burden to prove the case. So defense attorneys don't actually have to do anything. They don't even have to put on a case at all. right? They can just sit there silently the entire if they think it's the right strategy, they can be silent the entire um, entire case. So no, they don't have the same duty. Prosecutors also have a duty. Uh, to be, quote, unquote, ministers of justice, which means that they're not supposed to just be uh, zealously representing the state and getting a conviction everywhere they can. They're supposed to be doing the ethically responsible thing, whereas defense attorneys, actually, their main responsibility, with a few caveats about, uh, you know, suborning perjury, um, their responsibility is to zealously advocate for their client. Um, So, no, they don't have the same responsibility. That's not how our system works. Um, I think the, the big issue here is that without any sort of Um, civil liability and with a real sort of lack of interest in disciplining prosecutors um, and with the sort of way prosecutor's offices are black boxes. So no one really knows what's happening. um, This kind of misconduct can, I'm not saying it is rampant, but it could be, and we might never know.
2: So Joanna, I don't want to ask you to justify or rationalize this kind of prosecutorial abuse. But what is the logic behind giving prosecutors such immunity? How is that thought to help in serving justice, even though that might be a misleading way of looking at justice? How, what is their logic behind giving them such immunity?
3: So first, I just want to, to clarify, Sort of, we're talking now about, I mean, Kate has talked a lot about sort of the, the, the practical reality um, that there is not a uh, criminal immunity, but it but it essentially um, operates in practice. The the focus um, that that we were um, uh, on in the Boston Review piece, and that and that um, that your question points to, is in the civil liability context, um, because you certainly can, um, in many instances, if you have been wronged, um, bring a claim for damages, um, but. Uh, the Supreme Court has um, given prosecutors absolute immunity from liability um, in cases against them. So um, for anything in their prosecutorial function, um, they have absolute immunity. And it is um, something, an immunity that the Supreme Court has explained has historical roots. um, When the power was given, Um, during uh, Reconstruction after the Civil War to people to bring suit against government officials for violating constitutional protections. Um, There was, the Supreme Court says, an absolute immunity given to prosecutors. um, Folks who have thought more about the history of that um, immunity um, raise questions about about the strength of of that um, historical story, but that's um, what the Supreme Court has said. And The underlying justification for that immunity um, is to protect prosecutors from the distractions of being sued, the fear of financial liability um, if they were sued. And so the the general idea is that giving prosecutors absolute immunity um, will allow them to do their job vigorously.
2: Why do you see that as a faulty logic?
3: Well, it, it, prosecutors uh, it, prosecutors um, uh, are, as I've said, they're, they are um, given this absolute immunity, but I have no reason to think that they would be personally responsible for any settlements or judgments that would be entered against them. When I did research about um, the frequency with which police officers personally pay settlements and judgments in suits brought against them, I found, um, looking at 81 jurisdictions across the country over a six-year period, that officers contributed 0.02% of the dollars that plaintiffs were awarded in those cases. And I have no reason to think that um, prosecutors, were they uh, able to be sued for their prosecutorial decisions, no reason to think that they wouldn't be covered by the same indemnification agreements that currently shield police officers from liability. So... The the notion um, of the need for absolute uh, immunity for prosecutors, at least the financial story, um, strikes me as as one that is um, without uh, without
1: empirical support. I'd like to jump in also and just say that I think, logically, it doesn't really make sense either. Prosecutors are lawyers. They're fully able to understand the rules of evidence and what evidence they must turn over, uh, for instance. And so the idea that they can't do their job, uh, which is, again, not to be the most zealous advocate, but to be a minister of justice, the fact that they wouldn't be able to do that job to the fullest um, because of fear for being sued for for misconduct uh, strikes me as just not 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 particularly logical and not not a great argument.
2: So, Kate, do you think that immunity corrupts prosecutors. We've had guests on our shows don't believe in the bad apples theory for police because they believe the system made those police into bad apples. We've talked with guests about how that immunity affects the way the police do their job, that they turn into corrupt officers because of the corrupt system that they join into without being aware possibly of how much corruption is in that system. Does the bad system make bad prosecutors?
1: Yes, I, I'm, I I fully buy into um, exactly what you just said about previous guests that it's a system problem rather than an individual problem, and and that that saying um, mis- police misconduct or prosecutorial misconduct is an individual problem it just allows um, you know those in power in these systems to turn a blind eye to the you know historical and uh, continuing. Uh, systemic problems that will not go away unless they're addressed sort of at the root. And that's another thing that that Joanna and I wrote about in Boston Review, which is that one also is not able to um, sue prosecutors' offices or um, sue police departments, um, because it's not that you're not able to. You're technically allowed to, and Joanna knows a little bit more about that than I do, but um, it's very hard to win a lawsuit against an office, which I think would actually be more productive, because the question is, what are the incentives that are being set up by the head of the office? What are prosecutors being told is their job uh, versus, um, you know, what we may think of as their job? If they're being told win, win all your cases, um, and and that's how you're gonna succeed in this office, then they're more likely to either sort of be neglectful or willfully uh, ignorant about evidence they're supposed to turn over.
2: So, Joanna, how difficult is it to sue a police department? How many obstacles are there? Even though we have the right to sue sue a prosecutor or a police department, how, how difficult is that to have done?
3: So, the question of, of um, municipal liability, meaning right. um, the ability to sue a prosecutor's office or a um, police department um, for more systemic conduct, um, is challenging uh, in its own ways that um, are different from the challenges of qualified immunity, but they but they actually share some some conceptual um, framing. So um in order to sue, um, for systemic conduct by a prosecutor's office or a police department, you essentially have to show both that the plaintiffs' um, rights, constitutional rights, were violated, but also that um, they were violated because of uh, municipal or citywide or countywide um, policy or practice or custom. And typically, um, that is, uh, people try to show that by showing that there were pre previous incidents of misconduct, previous similar violations that um, the chief policymakers knew of but failed to take um, sufficient response to. And so they inadequately supervised or trained or disciplined their subordinates. Um, And the Supreme Court has held that um, those prior incidents have to be very similar to Um, to the incident at hand in order to give them sufficient notice. Um, And the case where the Supreme Court spelled this out was actually a case involving a prosecutor's office, a case called Connick versus Thompson, um, where uh, a person um, was convicted, sent to death row, um, was actually a month away from being executed, before his uh, lawyer's investigator discovered that there was um, blood evidence that had been tested before the trial um, and had shown that blood at the scene was not um, the defendant's, but had never turned that over to to him or his lawyers. Um, when the investigator discovered this on an old piece of microfiche, um, they uh, were able to get a new trial. Uh, he was um, found not guilty um, and then brought a suit against um, the prosecutor's office. Couldn't sue anyone individually because of absolute immunity, but sued the prosecutor's office. And the Supreme Court basically said that um, there, even though there had been multiple prior instances of prosecutors in that office failing to disclose exculpatory evidence, which is um, an obligation under a case called Brady, um, a constitutional obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence, even though they hadn't done it several times um, over the past uh, 10 years and had resulted in o- several overturned convictions. The Supreme Court said, "This uh, these facts were not enough to put the prosecutor on notice that he needed to better train." His, uh, his prosecutors because that prior evidence did not concern blood evidence. <laughs> Essentially, it, because the types of evidence that weren't disclosed were different than the types of evidence in this case that weren't disclosed, um, then that was insufficient to put the prosecutors on notice. So just like when, with qualified immunity, you need to find a prior case with virtually identical facts. In order to establish municipal liability or prosecutor's liability, police department's liability, you need to find prior incidents of misconduct that were factually almost identical to the case at hand in order to show that the policymaker knew of this problem and failed to correct it.
2: Well, there's a question I'm going to ask both you and Kate in a second. And, uh, Joanna, I just wanted to pose something else to you first, and that is, So prior to Thompson going to trial, prosecutors knew he was innocent in the office of Harry Connick Sr. What does it say to you about either the culture or society or system of prosecution, Joanna, when a prosecutorial team would know that somebody was innocent and they pursued the case anyway, even leading to the potential death penalty?
3: I don't I don't know what to say. I mean, your question, your question says it. I, I think that that I uh, I, I don't I, I'm I'm uncomfortable uh, saying what what one prosecutor's offices um, decisions say about our society as a whole. Um, but I think, of course, it is incredibly disturbing um, and frightening that any prosecutor or any prosecutor's office Um, Would do such a thing
2: So that leads me to Our question from Hell we have been speaking with Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz they are authors of the Monthly Review article being critical Of the prosecutorial regime here In the United States hold prosecutors Accountable to which was reposted at Black Agenda Report as well You can find Kate on Twitter at klevine 2 and you can find Joanna on Twitter at J.C. Schwartz Prof. So our final question That we do with each and every one of our guests Is the question from hell, the question we Hate to ask, you might hate to answer Our audience is going to hate your response I usually have a separate one for each of our Guests when we have two co-authors on The show, but I just want to ask You both the same question, and we'll start With you, Kate, and then we'll have Joanna Have her response. You two write The prosecutors bring the legal charges That support arrests, they also Ignore unconstitutional police work Act out their racist beliefs on juries and commit varying levels of unconstitutional to illegal conduct themselves. In their zeal to win cases, a very, very, very good friend of our show is the attorney Flint Taylor, who was part of the team that was able to hold the Chicago Police Department accountable for the assassination of Fred Hampton, with a then record-setting settlement from the city, as well as doing the same for notorious CPD commander John Burge, who lied about his involvement in torture of civilians, as well as dozens of other police abuse cases over the past few decades that Flint has been involved in. He told us to always... Always be skeptical of prosecutors who run for higher office, including Kamala Harris, who has been rumored to be a potential running mate for Joe Biden. And when we were talking to Flint, it was before Lori Lightfoot had become mayor here in Chicago, and Flint was not very happy about that. He had criticized her very much for her role as a prosecutor here in Chicago. So let's start with you, Kate. By definition, the defense attorney represents the people and the prosecutor represents the state. How skeptical are you of prosecutors and former prosecutors? Would you support a political candidate who is running for office if they have a history of being a prosecutor?
1: I actually think it's interesting how you phrase that because a lot of people think that prosecutors represent the people, although i'm i I don't necessarily think that. but um prosecutors represent the state and defense attorneys represent their individual clients. Um, I tend to be skeptical of prosecutors running for office, um, but I wouldn't make a blanket statement about it. I think for me, the question is, you know, what have they said or done since um, since they've stopped their, uh, job as a prosecutor. There's plenty, for instance, of legal academics who started their careers as prosecutors and have since seen uh, the immense problems with the criminal legal system and dedicated themselves to um, helping fix them. So for me, the question is less, uh, were they a prosecutor and more, what are they saying about what, what kind of accountability are they taking for themselves on, on what they, uh, how they contributed to the problems in our criminal legal system and, and what are they advocating for now?
2: And, Joanna, so are you busy right now uh, working on your Kamala Harris for vice president campaign? How do you feel about prosecutors running for higher office?
3: I think that, uh, you know, I think that running for higher office, <laughs> running for office um, at all is um, particularly in this moment um, something that, you uh, you know that that many people are are scared away from, and for good reason. And I am not interested personally in creating bright line rules about who I will and will not support. Um, and I I recognize the skepticism about prosecutors, but I also want to point out that that the oops, <laughs> that the question suggests that prosecutors are only one thing. I mean, the 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 um, prosecutor in San Francisco right now used to be a public defender. The prosecutor in Philadelphia right now is a civil rights attorney. So I think that um, who prosecutors are can change. And I think that we do better for ourselves as a society um, by thinking about um, the ways in which um, we can change the mindset of prosecutors, um, as opposed to deciding who prosecutors are, um, and that we simply don't trust them.
2: Kate and Joanna, thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating article. Everybody should go check it out. We have a direct link to it at our website. It's over at the Boston Review website. Hold prosecutors accountable too was reposted at Black Agenda Report. Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz, thank you so much for being on our show this week.
1: Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks
3: for having us
2: bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter-blind, Captooth tooth radio show podcast live-streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is, who or what are you pointing a gun at? Who or what are you pointing a gun at? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. All you have to do to to win the mask is have our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell. Or if you can't wait to see if you won and you want a damn mask, go to thisishell.com and click on support. That's thisishell.com and click on support you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we will be announcing this week's winner alex do you have any more answers to this week's question mail
0: this is a question mail who or what are you pointing a gun at pete v says everything and everybody i'm not taking any chances <laughs> at least it didn't say your mother uh then the next response from pete v is also <laughs> your mom <laughs> Gorilla G says, The apple, I told you. Now hold still. Dan O says, What are you, William Burroughs? The murder hornets. Uh, William GR says, I have come here to speak to a manager and kick ass, and I'm all out of managers. <laughs> Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Jack B says, Reality, you're talking metaphorically, right? Right. Pammy H says, My foot. Chad F says, Matthew McConaughey, so that he realizes how dumb it looks when he sweeps his family and or allies with his muzzle in every movie he makes. <laughs> John H. says, does waving a gun work like Viagra? It doesn't. Steve uh, Stevens R. says, hopefully the firearms instructor who failed to teach her trigger discipline.
2: Although there is sexual gunplay in
3: The
0: Man Who Fell to Earth, so maybe. Damn, it's a weird movie wreck from Chuck. <laughs> uh, Fritz K. says, pointing the gun at her future. Corianne says, the sun or any other source of light, actually. Scott S says, "This is America. I just wave it all around, all over, everywhere and everywhere, including at my husband, with all with my finger on the trigger, while I stand defiantly in front of my McMansion, as is mandated by the Constitution." Now that's an American. Who or what are you pointing a gun at? Martin F says, "I'll point my gun at Chuck and Alex if they don't laugh at this joke." <laughs> what do you call a hot dog with gas? A frank farter. The joke wasn't funny. The run up to it was hilarious. Gregory M. says, I point it at the pointless in order to give it meaning from within the thrill of the danger. Michael okay. F. says, the people trying to get on the lifeboat I'm in with all my luggage. <laughs> Mark AS says, pointing it in the circling skies, it's a holiday weekend again. Lisa O. says, she found her husband with the nanny rolling around and she's going to get them both. Daniel F. says, the I... manager. Kim G. says, viral loads. And finally, Max I. says, urinal cakes, which of course are neither. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Again, email us your answer to Chuck at com. Alex at com. Post them on our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. DM us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio. We'll be announcing this week's winner at the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in. Now, during tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff finds out who put the pomp in Pompeo, and who's the guest on tomorrow's show. Alex, do we have any idea
0: yet? Uh, Yeah, one of my all-time faves, Richard Seymour, is going to be back on the show to talk about his red pepper piece. The nationalist unconscious to fully grasp the rise of the new authoritarians, we must engage with psychoanalysis as well as economics. I'm looking forward to Richard Seymour
2: correcting me and how I completely misunderstood one of his sentences, because I think that's happened in both the interviews that we've done with him. Tune in to tomorrow's streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago Time show right here at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if you have won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex, Kate Levine, and Joanna Schwartz. The planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell.
0: Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.